If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now, they do have Bibles, and if you just get their attention by waving to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands so that you can not only hear the Word this morning, but also follow along with your own eyes. So on Sunday morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and very near the end of his earthly ministry, now after his resurrection, but before his ascension into heaven, in John's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 15. And so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. And Jesus said to Peter again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Never changes. Thank you that this is truth, Lord, that you stand behind. Thank you that this is a living word, Lord. That as we come to know your word and as we obey your word, it puts us in right relationship with you. And it puts us in right relationship with all of your creation all around us, Lord. We thank you for the life that is bound up in your instruction and simple obedience to it. And we pray, Lord, that the great revelation of your heart and your ways, Lord, that is found in this handful of verses, we pray that you would make that revelation evident to us, Lord, and that you would make it a part of our everyday, working, living part of our Lives, And we look to you for that. Lord, we just, we want to know in our heads, we want to understand in our heads, but we want all of this to translate into the daily as well. And so we look to you for that work of your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A number of years ago, I was asked to go to a foreign country and spend a week uh, teaching uh, leaders there in that country and the trip uh, wasn't able to come together for a variety of reasons but as I sat down and I began to think about what would I teach uh, this was before it kind of fell through I, I thought if I was to go over there and teach for a week there what would I teach a group of, of Christian ministers and pastors over there and I I thought to myself uh, in, in terms of um, a theme, an overall theme for maybe a large collection of studies, I thought I'd been titling it Keys to Longevity in the Christian Life or Keys to Longevity in Christian Service. And certainly any series on Keys to Longevity in Christian Service and in the Christian Life would have to include a Bible study on how to deal with failure in the Christian life, how to deal with personal failure in our lives as Christians. Because the fact of the matter is, no matter how serious we are about our relationship with the Lord, no matter how much we love Him, Peter loved Jesus, there's no doubt about that. 
No matter how committed to the Lord we are, no matter how earnest we are about our relationship with the Lord, none of us is going to be perfect in that relationship or in our service to Him. Every single one of us is going to fall short of Christ-likeness in our relationship with the Lord and in our service to Him. And so, when we do fail, if we don't know how to handle those failures, we're going to run the risk of becoming a needless casualty of our own sin and our own imperfections. And I want to talk about that important subject this morning and from this incident in the life of the Apostle Peter. We remember that the disciples, including Peter, actually five apostles and two disciples that are unnamed, they're up in the northern section of Israel at this time, following Jesus' resurrection from the dead in the region known as the Galilee. In fact, they're right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They went from Jerusalem to the Galilee under Jesus' instruction. He had told them to go there and that ultimately he would meet with them. And while they were waiting for Jesus, Peter grew impatient with the waiting. And so he then declared to the others, I'm going fishing. And the other six disciples, they quickly joined him in this act of you know, self-direction. And as a result, they fished all night and they caught nothing. And as they were ready to call it a night and, and end their fishing expedition that evening, as they're making their way to shore, when they're still about a hundred yards away from shore, Jesus called out from the shore. They didn't know it was Jesus and asked them if they'd caught any fish. And they declared to him, no, they hadn't caught any fish. And Jesus told them that they would catch some fish if they would cast the net on the right side of the boat and in their uh, kind of humbled condition and desperate condition they decided to throw the net into the water and as they did so uh, the net was filled with fish almost to the point of, of breaking the nets and they immediately realized that it was Jesus that had was on the shore giving them that direction and so they proceeded hurriedly to make their way to the shore and upon arriving there they saw a coal of fire fish laid upon it and also bread and Jesus then invited them to come and eat breakfast the breakfast that he had prepared for them and I want you to notice in verses 12 and 13 as we kind of uh, saw a little bit last week didn't really delve into it that while they were eating breakfast it was a silent breakfast <laughs> you ever had a silent breakfast I've had a few uh, when I've been in trouble and uh, so most of them in my childhood. So as Jesus here serves them the breakfast that he prepared for them, uh, the Bible tell, is careful to tell us that nobody spoke. They all knew it was Jesus, but nobody spoke out. And I think that perhaps there's some conviction on their part at having attempted to replace God's plan for their life with their own plan uh, for their life and feeling a little bit bad about that. It's interesting, too, that Jesus remains silent as well. And so I can imagine as nobody's talking there and Jesus would be the one to break the silence and he doesn't break the silence for some period of time. You know, silence can kind of weigh on you, especially if you're under conviction. <laughs> uh, 
uh, and you're needing some word of comfort in light of being a little bit wayward. And so there's this silence and probably very, very powerful uh, to experience. And they had to be wondering to a man, what in the world was Jesus thinking? And then suddenly in verse 15, Jesus broke the silence. And interestingly enough, he broke the silence by calling out a name. And so he called out, uh, uh, announcing the name, Simon, son of Jonah. Now imagine hearing your name. There's like the other six guys, you're there. You know that you initiated the fishing expedition, but you're hoping you won't be called out by name related to it. And so God, hears Jesus, calls out, Simon's name. Simon, son of Jonah, and then he followed the announcement of the name with a question directed to Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? And so here we have, and it's important to understand, we have a conversation between Jesus and Peter that Jesus initiates. The other thing that's significant about it is it's a public Uh, conversation. Not all conversations that God has with us are public. In fact, relatively few of them are public. And, uh, And so this is a public conversation by design. Jesus wanted this conversation to occur within the hearing of the other disciples. It's important to understand what's going on here by remembering Peter's past failure. So when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? We can ask ourselves, what is he referring to? Do you love me more than these? Who are these these? And the answer is found in an earlier statement Jesus made, uh, Peter made to Jesus in the presence of all of the other apostles a couple of weeks earlier. On uh, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus had declared that all of the disciples would deny him. They would deny knowing him out of a concern for their own personal uh, safety. And in the presence of all of the other disciples and in the presence of Jesus, when Jesus made that prophetic declaration to them, Peter vowed, though everyone else were to deny Jesus, he would never deny Jesus. He said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He is the absolute picture of self-confidence in that scene. Now, he did more in that statement than declare that he would never deny Jesus. As a part of that statement was a statement that showed great disrespect toward the other apostles because he contrasted himself with the other apostles and essentially was declaring that their denial of you would not surprise me. But my denial of you, that is a physical impossibility. In a parallel passage in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14, verse 29, let me read three different translations of it for you. In the New King James, it is translated, Peter said to him, to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Another translation has it, Peter answered, I will never leave you even though all the rest do. A very comparative statement. Another translation has it, but Peter said to him, even if everyone else turns against you, I certainly won't. But before that, the 
morning of the following day was over, sure enough, Peter denies Jesus, just as they all did. And Peter denies Jesus not just once, not twice, but he denies Jesus three times. Now, following his third denial, we're told that Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And when he remembered that, even as he heard the rooster crowing, he then went out, we're told, and he wept bitterly. I mean, it's just, it's a terrible place to be. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of a place where you just feel like you've so disappointed the Lord, you're so ashamed of yourself. And you're just, you're just ashamed of your cowardice and, and so ashamed of your failure and your disloyalty toward the Lord. And he was forewarned and he still failed. And, and it was just a terrible, terrible place for him to be in. And thus when Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than these? He's speaking of that incident. And he's referring to Peter's boast-filled statement which communicated that he loved Jesus more than all of the disciples. So he's asking Peter, are you still so confident that you're superior in your love for me than all of these other disciples? You, you know, he, he didn't fare any better than any of them had done on, on that day. Now we're going to spend another week examining this passage to bring out a couple of other points here. But this morning I want to focus on the major theme of the passage, which is Jesus' public restoration of Peter in the ministry following his failure. And, and to notice the fact that he did it publicly before others. Now prior to this public restoration of Peter into Christian service, Jesus had met with Peter privately. The Gospels declare that to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 declares that to us. Sometime on the day of Jesus' resurrection, before he met with the disciples in the room that evening, he met with Peter privately. Now where that took place, uh, the details of the event, we don't know anything about it except that it occurred. That was a conversation that was private between Jesus and Peter. And I'm thankful that there's a lot of conversations that occur in the Christian life that are private between us and Jesus. And what had to happen in that, in that conversation, uh, what was being restored was Peter's, the intimacy of Peter's relationship with Jesus. He had sinned against Jesus and there needed to be a restoration related to that. And, and, and so this was all, all that personal relationship side of things, all of that got taken care of on the day of Jesus' resurrection. But that private restoration had left Peter only half restored because in his denial he hadn't just sinned against the Lord, but due to his proud boasting he had also sinned against the other disciples. And he had without a doubt done damage to the relationship between him and the other, other disciples or apostles to some degree. None of them squawked about it. None of them broke, you know, brought any of it up. None of them confronted Peter. Hey, what's up with the big mouth act and you and this and that? You didn't do any better than us. Nobody did anything like that. Everybody just sat on it. But everybody remembered it. Everybody knew it happened. Everybody knew that that was Peter's attitude toward them. That 
the pride behind the statement. The, the word that's most often translated pride in the New Testament, it means to see myself above other people. And behind that statement was a considerable seeing myself above or better than other people. So the relationship is strained. The relationship is damaged. Even though it isn't terminally damaged, even though nobody says anything about it, but damage has been done. And God has a lot of plans for all of these people's lives, and they're going to need to work together. And so now he's going to address the damage that has been done, that may be a damage that only he was fully aware of. And, and so this need now to have this addressed not only privately, but addressed publicly. Additionally, the disciples didn't know exactly how Peter's denial of Jesus might have affected his position as an apostle of the Lord Jesus. How had his uh, ministry and God's calling upon his life been forever destroyed by his three-time denial of the Lord. Now this restoration of Peter consisted of Jesus posing three questions to him. We notice in verse 15, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Verse 16, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Now why in the world would Jesus pose a question to Peter three times, one after the other, the same uh, question? And the reason he poses this same question to Peter three times, I think doubtless is in order that it would correspond to Peter's three denials. Never, we should never look at Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Asking him three times, making him answer three times that Jesus is doing something cruel to Peter here. Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to cover each one of those, I do not know him, each one of those denials with the beauty of, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And this is the way that the Lord is and the way that He works in our lives. He will never, ever allow some failure in our past to have the final say in our lives or some repeated series of failures. He will always work in our lives in such a way that His grace has the final say in every circumstance in our lives. And Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to publicly confess him again and overwhelm those three denials with three even stronger confessions of his love for the Lord. And we notice Peter's three responses to the three questions of Jesus. And again, in each response, Peter confesses his love for the Lord. Notice verse 15, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, verse 16, you know that I love you. Verse 17, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, there's an interesting word play that occurs. And the, the language, the original language of the New Testament is Greek. And so it doesn't play out in the English because we read the word love, 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 love repeated through the passage. And we've got one word for love in the English language, and that's the word love. But in the Greek, there are a handful of different words that are used for love. And Jesus uses a couple of different words here, different words for love here. Peter uses an interesting word for love here. And it all kind of helps us understand what it is 
that's happening and and it speaks to the great change that has happened in Peter's life following his failure exchange number one there in verse 15 and the first question when Jesus asks Peter uh, Simon son of Jonah do you love me more than these the word for love in the original language is the word agape it's the highest uh, word for love in the Greek language it speaks, uh, it's, the, it's the word that God uses of his love for us. For God so agape or loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that Greek word agape, that speaks of a love, the, a, a love that is not supremely emotional, but it's an act of the will. So this is a committed love. This is a determined uh, love uh, here. It's a anyway love. It's a no matter what you are, no matter what you do, I love you. And so it speaks of an unconditional, selfless love. And so Jesus asked Peter, do you love me with agape? And Peter, in his first uh, response, he doesn't rise to the height of that word at all and instead when he says to Jesus you know that I love you the word that he uses the Greek word that's used to describe his love is the word phileo and that's a word that's a lesser quality than agape it means speaks of a brotherly love it speaks of a fond affection it speaks of the love of friendship and so G Peter declared Jesus I have a fond, affectionate love for you. Verse 16, the exchange is identical with the first one in the sense that Jesus again uses the word agape and again Peter uses the word phileo. In verse 17, the third exchange, Jesus does something very interesting here and in that he comes down from the word agape, he comes down to Peter's level and he asks Peter uh, there, he said, uh, do you, uh, Simon Peter, uh, do you phileo me? He uses the word that Peter has been using. Peter, do you have a strong affection? Do you have a brotherly love for me? And Peter responded that he did have phileo or that uh, fond affection for Jesus. Now some people find fault with Peter here and I know this is a little technical for some people but it's, it's worth understanding related to the passage. Just stick with me. and I see most of you are so I'm thankful for that. Now some people look at Peter and they find a fault with him uh, over the fact that he does not rise up to the word agape but he keeps using the lesser word for love the word uh, phileo but in in reality it's a commendable thing that Peter is doing here in light of the circumstance remember he's failed he has failed in a way he never dreamed he could fail now You and I might not fail in the same way, but if you put in your mind and you say, in this area, in this circumstance, I would never fail the Lord, that's where he's failed. He has shocked himself. So he, he, it, all of this self-confidence, all of his great boasting, all of this that was 
in him he has failed the Lord miserably and for a guy like Peter he's in a trial that's as hard as a trial gets for a guy that has that kind of a personality where you've gotten by your whole life on natural talent and natural strength and I go and I will and I and this and all of your life your own determination and talent and skill has gotten you by and even as you become a Christian and walk as he has for some time with the Lord that natural strength and, and determination has gotten him by and then suddenly you crash and burn in a way that surprises even you and when that happens it leaves you unsure of everything for a while you don't know who you are you don't know what you are you don't know what you can and you can't do anymore. You don't know what the lines are. You don't know where you're strong. You don't know where you're weak. Everything's being reassessed in the, the kind of uh, free fall that occurs inside of us emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And with Peter there has to be, as is the case with anyone in this kind of a thing, is have I thrown away God's calling upon my life? Is there any future for me in, a, in service unto the Lord and so here he is I mean he is and any of us in that place if we've been in that place we understand it totally vulnerable you don't know you don't have any confidence in anything you don't know what you're going to do you don't know what's going to happen from here and he's just kind of sorting through the wreckage and the one thing that he doesn't want to do anymore is to boast beyond the reality of what he really is. And so when Jesus says agape, he said, I don't know. I know phileo, but I'm not going to boast myself up into a word or into describing a relationship that I have with you that I'm not sure is there. And so there's this humility in his using of this lesser word. Now Peter's tendency in his past would have been to grab onto the highest word and make it his own and even make it his own boast. But he's learned something from his failure and that is not to state or overstate what is or isn't in his heart. Peter, have you an absolutely pure, unselfish love for me above what others have? And that word agape challenged Peter, and he couldn't rise to it. And so he says, I love you, Lord, you know that. But I'm done making any more self-confident confessions about myself. And as we read the account, some of us might wonder, why did Jesus deal with Peter's sin privately and publicly and as we've noted Jesus had already met privately with a very repentant Peter fellowship had been restored between them but now Jesus confronts Peter with his sin publicly and then restores him publicly in front of the other disciples and I think it's a good thing for us to ask why in the world would he do it why can't our sin sometimes or always be dealt with just privately between us and the Lord Surely I think the Lord dealt with it publicly in front of the other disciples so that they would know that Peter's failure had not disqualified him for Christian service or hadn't disqualified him for fulfilling God's 
call upon his life. But I think he did it publicly also to repair any damage that Peter's boasting and pride had done to his relationship with the other disciples. His sin hadn't just affected him. It had affected other people. So when he had done the wrong of boasting in himself, he had, uh, he had not only boasted in himself, but in comparing himself to others, he dragged them into his boasting. And in that statement, he had publicly humiliated them and put them down. And again, as I said, this had a potential to do great damage, not only in the personal relationship between the apostles, but also to God's work to really hurt their effectiveness. And so now Peter needed to humble himself before the other apostles and disciples. And to his credit, uh, Peter did it. It's not easy medicine to, for Peter to swallow. I think uh, a lot of times, maybe some of you recognize this as a characteristic in your own life. I think most people, when they fail in a, and sin against another person in a relationship... Even within the body of Christ, the great tendency is to just simply ignore it, uh, hope it goes away, hope nobody says anything about it, and that time will heal all of the damage that was done. And, 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 uh, but the problem with that, and pretending that it never happened, the problem with that is that it leaves a lot of relational damage Unaddressed, And God demands more of us as Christians uh, than just ignoring when we've sinned against other people and damaged them. But there's a necessity to humble ourselves. Our restoration to fellowship with the Lord following some sin, some sin that has affected other people, it involves the same two steps as it involved with Peter. Number one, I need to confess my sin to God and to restore my relationship with him. All sin is supremely against God. Even if I sin against another person, I have sinned against God in that way. And for a child of God, for a Christian, the Holy Spirit is grieved as a result of that sin. So the relationship with God now has been damaged. And so what do I do with that? The Bible says that I'm to confess my sin. We are to confess our sin to the Lord, 1 John 1, 9, it's called the Christian bar of soap in the Bible. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that word confess that's used in that verse is different than just, um, you know, what I used to do when I would go to the priest as a young boy on Saturday so I could take communion in the Catholic Church on the Sunday, go in the booth and just blurt out every side, confess every sin I did and every sin my brother did. So I'd, I'd tell him all kinds of things that had happened earlier in the week. But that's not what it's just, it's not just going to God and saying, oh yeah, God, by the way, I just, you know, did this over here and, and just please forgive me on that and going on about my business. The word confess means to see that sin the way that God sees it. So it's like, it's to put ourselves where Peter is. Or we're disappointed. Lord, I'm disappointed in what I, I did there. I'm disappointed in what it, it's, the harm that it's done. I'm disappointed that it's, it's put distance between you and me. And so it is, it is to look at a sin and to, to take the time to look at it and see it the way that God does. That's the confession that's being made 
in, a, in the asking for forgiveness. There's a humility about it. There's obviously repentance that's involved in that kind of a handling of things. Lord, I, I don't want to be defiled by that sin anymore. I don't want to practice that sin. I don't want that to characterize my life. Lord, I turn from it. I want to walk differently the next time. That's what's involved in that verse. So there's that, that confession. And when we confess our sin to the Lord... In that way, the Lord is faithful to forgive us. And that's a promise. So we go to God. We don't make any excuses. If she had only, if he had only, and how could they, and all the justifications and all those kind of things. There's none of that in that confession. It is confessing that sin to the Lord, seeing it the way he sees it, asking for forgiveness, and then receiving his forgiveness and moving forward. Now, that verse is not saying that we're to tell anyone and everyone about all of our sins, secret or otherwise. Who would want, I wouldn't want to know every sin in one person's life, uh, let alone everybody else's life. So it's not telling us uh, to do that, but, um, uh, but you know, to lift it up to confess our sin you know to the lord now at, once our sin has been confessed to the lord then we need to sit down and ask ourselves whether our sin has um, significantly affected other people and if people have been other people have been significantly impacted by the sin that i have committed they've been hurt by the sin they've been harmed by the sin then the bible says that i am to go to them and to ask for their forgiveness as well so this is the public side this is what's going on here with peter in this situation james chapter 5 verse 16 confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may uh, be healed. Now, now again, I got ahead of myself a little bit. This is not saying that I am to go and confess all of my secret sin or all of my sin to anyone and everyone. It's not talking about that at all. But again, to confess our sin to people who have been significantly affected by our sin and then to ask for their forgiveness in order that the relationship might be healed and in order that they might then have what they need for the relationship not only to be healthy again, but stronger again. I think, you know, I've walked with the Lord for a little while, not as long as a lot of people, a little longer than other people. And there's a funny thing that happens when people are obedient to this. When I, when I realize I can't expect perfection of anyone else but God in this world. And that's a big step to take for some of us. And then when somebody comes and says, you know what, I am sorry that those words came out of my mouth. I'm sorry that I made that decision. I'm sorry that I treated you in that way. And it requires great repentance and humility on the person's part to confess their sin to the other person. You think, oh boy, they're going to think so little of me and this and that. But that's not what happens, is it? You walk away and you respect the person so much. You say, man, that had to be so hard for them to do. 
And the only reason that they wouldn't just have just stuffed that thing, ignored it, gone on with life and said, you're just going to have to deal with it like the whole world deals with uh, sin against one another, by and large, they did that because they love the Lord and they love me. And relationships, some of the deepest relationships we end up having in the body of Christ are on the other side of that kind of an experience with one another. It never weakens a relationship. It always strengthens respect, and it strengthens the relationship. So this confession here that is happening here, in Peter confessing not only to, Peter, to, to Jesus, but also confessing that, that he doesn't love Jesus more than these others uh, do, and, and all, it showed a great humility on Peter's Heart and had to have been hard to do, but he did it. I'll tell you, any leader in the body of Christ, really any Christian, but certainly true of, of a leader, who cannot admit to others that they were wrong when they were wrong, that, that leader is not a safe influence among God's people. Because that inability or unwillingness to admit I'm wrong, that comes from pride. And pride is about as destructive a thing as you can have in a leader. But it's not just the leader of a church or this or that or some Christian organization. It has to do with homes. It has to do with families, marriages, children. It, it touches all of our lives and the place that we lead. I hope you don't follow in this world. We all lead in this world as Christians. We're to be the head and not the tail, the Bible says, as we walk with the Lord. So it applies to all of us in, in, in that way. And I, I don't think that any servant uh, of the Lord who cannot or will not admit to others when they've been wrong, they will never, ever secure the loyalty of other people. They will never, ever secure the respect of other Christians. And they will undermine their own effectiveness for the gospel and this affects all of us because all of us are less than perfect now let me close here this morning with uh, uh, something uh, one great lesson that we learn from this passage for our own lives this Bible passage teaches us supremely that our God is a restoring God now, some of us can have walked with the Lord long enough that we just think to ourselves, well, of course He is. But that truth about our God, the God of the Bible, should always awe us. We should never become so familiar with it that it, that it ceases to awe us. What if He wasn't a restoring God? What if He was a one big strike and you're out God? Or two big strikes. Or three big strikes. Or ten big strikes. How much of a nervous wreck would you be in that kind of a relationship with God? Oh, I'm at number seven. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because <laughs> if I couldn't stop before seven, I know ten's right around the corner, Lord. And my big dumb mouth, what am I going to, you know... And it isn't always easy to be restored. It requires humility. It requires brokenness. 
It's a part of the restoration. But always it occurs so our relationship with God can deepen and our effectiveness for the gospel can be restored and even strengthened. And I wonder if Peter thought during his denials and following his denials whether there was no future for him in Christian service at all, whether he now would be forever and supremely known as the one who had denied Jesus three times in the hour of Jesus' greatest need, that that would be his legacy down through history and would be the thing that they would put on his tombstone. It's wonderful to realize that God has too much grace for that. He'll never allow some failure in our past to have the final word concerning our lives or to be the thing that ultimately and supremely and eternally defines us. There's way too much grace for that. And little did Peter know what lay ahead of him for the glory of God. God chose him to preach on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 saved. A few days later, in that same city of Jerusalem, he preaches again, thousands more saved. God chose him to preach to the household of Cornelius in the city of Caesarea, which was the beginning of the birth of the Gentile church. God chose Peter to write two of the most encouraging epistles in all of the New Testament to Christians who are in the middle of trial and in the middle of difficulty and hardship. And all because Jesus would not allow failure to have the final say in Peter's life. And what is true of Peter is true of us as well. When you mention Peter to me, apart from this study where I'm forced to focus on his denials, you say, what do you think about when you think about Peter? I never think supremely about his denials. If you get me down to like number seven, eight, nine, ten of what I think of when I think of Peter, then we get there. I think of his love for the Lord. I think of his personality. I think of his commitment to the Lord. I think about how he continued to walk with the Lord even though they ended up crucifying him upside down at his death, he didn't deny him. I think about the great encourager he did become to the body of Christ. I think about, and it's a great lesson for so many of us, I think about how he just continued to serve the Lord and walk with the Lord, even though he would continually make mistakes all the way until the day he went into heaven, just the same way that all of us will do. And that's what we think about when we think about Peter. And that's the way that our God works. That's the God of the Bible. He's a restoring God. One of the keys to longevity in our service to the Lord is learning how to deal with failure. Because we will all face it. Those times in our Christian life when we, we give it our very best effort and yet for one reason or another we fail miserably in that situation. And there's a certain kind of person who upon failing God and disappointing others who then seeks to retreat into a world of self-protection. 
and they put themselves on the shelf and they cease then to serve the Lord. They cease to take a public place in, in that service to the Lord. They take and they don't need God to retire them or anyone else to retire them. They, they take and they retire themselves. And they look and they say, I, know I don't want to feel this anymore. I don't want to go through this anymore. I don't want to do this to anyone anymore. I don't want to hurt God this way anymore. But you know, I just don't want to be this vulnerable to making these kind of mistakes and having to pick up the pieces anymore. And so as an act of selfishness and self preservation I'm taking myself out you think about how many people in the body of Christ under the influence of failure just quietly remove themselves from God's call upon their lives I bet it's a larger number than we realize they just head into this place of self-protection and it's that kind of person that's the personality that you have then you are your own very worst enemy in your service to the Lord it won't be others that will drive you out of Christian service it certainly won't be God who drives you out of it but you will do it to yourself through self-condemnation and I love it in this passage where Jesus will not let Peter go there and Jesus spoke to Peter earlier before in speaking of his uh, failure and his sin and denials that were going to come and Jesus had a future for him he spoke of a future and a hope Peter said Jesus said to Peter I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail you'll fail but your faith won't and when you've returned to me Strengthen your brethren. I'll tell you, when we fail, we have learned something about God and about ourselves and about this Christian life that we are then to make a part of our knowledge and a part of our own personal relationship with God and then to impart what we have learned in that circumstance to others nothing is a waste that we have learned something from and perhaps the greatest thing we learn from our failures is how gracious God is and it's because of that that Peter when he finished his second and final letter epistle that he closed it in this way and being faithful to Jesus' command, when you've returned, strengthen the brethren. What did he strengthen us in? Peter wrote and said, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. In other words, there is no sin greater than the grace of God and the forgiveness of God when we will humble ourselves, repent of that sin and ask for his forgiveness, the forgiveness of significant others that have been sinned, and then to seek God about his gifts and his callings upon our life and to continue then to be faithful to that gifting and that calling. Have you failed in your Christian life? 
and allowed it to hurt your intimacy with God or allowed it to drive you far from God's call upon your life this morning, then this is a great morning to let God's grace restore you. And he'll do it. And then to spend, like Peter did, the rest of your life testifying to the greatness of God's grace to a world that desperately needs to hear that the God of the Bible is a God of grace and that he is a restoring God. All of the failure in this world, all of the sin, all of the guilt that's in this world, and the world needs to hear that the God of the Bible is a gracious God, that he's a forgiving God, that he's a restoring God. And there's an authority with which we carry that message once we have experienced it in our own lives, that God has the grace that is greater than our sins. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, God does not want your past sin to be your legacy or to have the final say related to your life. If you put your faith in Jesus this morning for the forgiveness of your sins, He will rewrite your life. He will change everything. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come inside your life and make you into a completely different person. Not only forgiveness of past sin, but now the power to live an entirely different kind of life. That's the opportunity that God wants you to give him to accomplish that in your life. He can't, he won't, he can, but he won't force himself on anyone. He will only come in and do that work at our invitation. And that's what makes our invitation to him to come into our lives the precious thing that it is to him. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you this morning to receive that forgiveness, that fresh start, and to begin a personal relationship with God. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Mm -hmm. Jesus, you are a sinner's Savior, and we are so thankful for that. And we're thankful, Lord, that while our sin and our shortcomings and failures surprise us and disappoint us, they never surprise you. And we thank you, Lord, that there is a future and a hope on the other side of our failures, Lord, and our sin as we just repent of that sin, humble ourselves, and make things right with you and with others. And Lord, we thank you for this passage concerning Peter and the instruction that it is for our own lives. Lord, we never want to hurt you. We never want to hurt your heart. And Lord, we never, ever want to hurt 
people. And Lord, when we do, we thank you that there is a way to restore and to repair. There is something we can put into the hands of your Holy Spirit to make relationships even stronger following the challenges of these kind of things. Thank you, Lord, for the greatness of your grace. And we close this morning, Lord, by saying, praise the Lord to you, and we owe everything to your grace. Thank you for your grace, Lord. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.